Thoughts on Religious Experience by the Princeton theologian of the last century, Archibald Alexander. There is no necessity for any other proof of native depravity than the aversion which children early manifest to religious instruction and to spiritual exercises. From this cause it proceeds that many children who have the opportunity of a good religious education learn scarcely anything of the most important truths of Christianity. If they are compelled to commit the catechism to memory, they are wont to do this without ever thinking of the doctrines contained in the words which they recite, so that, when the attention is at any time awakened to the subject of religion as a personal concern, they feel themselves to be completely ignorant of the system of divine truth taught in the Bible. Yet even to these the truths committed to memory are now of great utility. They are like a treasure which has been hidden but is now discovered. Of two persons under conviction of sin, one of whom has had sound religious instruction, and the other none, the former will have an unspeakable advantage over the latter in many respects. Many children and especially those who have pious parents who speak to them of the importance of salvation, are the subjects of occasional religious impressions of different kinds. Sometimes they are alarmed by hearing an awakening sermon, or by the sudden death of a companion of their own age, or again they are tenderly affected even to tears from a consideration of the goodness and forbearance of God, or from a representation of the love and sufferings of Christ. There are also seasons of transporting joy which some experience, especially after being tenderly affected with a sense of ingratitude to God for His wonderful goodness in sparing them and bestowing so many blessings upon them. These transient emotions of joy cannot always be easily accounted for, but they are commonly preceded or accompanied by a hope or persuasion that God is reconciled and will receive them. In some cases, it would be thought that these juvenile exercises were indications of a change of heart. Did they not pass away like the morning cloud or early dew, so as even to be obliterated from the mind which experienced them? Some undertake to account for these religious impressions merely from the susceptible principle of human nature, in connection with the external instructions of the word and some striking dispensation of providence. But the cause assigned is not adequate, because the same circumstances often exist when no such effects follow. Others ascribe them to the evil spirit, who is ever seeking to deceive and delude unwary souls by inspiring them with a false persuasion of their good estate, while they are in the gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity. While I would not deny that Satan may take advantage of these transient exercises to induce a false hope, I cannot be persuaded that he produces these impressions, for often the persons before experiencing them were as careless and stupid as he could wish him to be, and because the tendency of these impressions is salutary, the youth thus affected becomes more tender in conscience, forsakes known sin before indulged, has recourse to prayer and feels strong desires after external happiness. 
These are not what Satan would effect if he could, unless we could suppose that he was operating against himself, which our Savior has taught us to be impossible. I am of opinion, therefore, that these transient impressions should be ascribed to the common operations of the Spirit of God, and may have some inexplicable connection with the future conversion and salvation of the person. There is a common practical error in the minds of many Christians in regard to this matter. They seem to think that nothing has any relation to the conversion of the sinner but that which immediately preceded this event. And the Christian is ready to say, I was awakened under such a sermon, and never had rest until I found it in Christ, making nothing of all previous instructions and impressions. So when a revival occurs under the awakening discourses of some evangelists, people are ready to think that he only is a successful preacher whose labor God owns and blesses, whereas he does but bring forward to maturity feelings and convictions which have been long secretly forming and growing within the soul, but so imperceptibly that the person himself was little sensible of any change. It may be justly and scripturally compared to a growing crop. After the seed is sown, it vegetates. We know not how. And when it receives daily the sun's influence, and from time to time refreshing showers, but about the time of earing, after a long drought, there comes a plentiful shower, by means of which nutriment is afforded for the formation of the full corn in the ear. No one will dispute the importance and efficacy of this last shower in maturing the grain, but had there been no cultivation and no showers long before, this had never produced any effect. Whether those who are never converted are the subjects of these religious impressions, as well as those who are afterwards brought to faith in Christ, is a question not easily answered that they experience dreadful alarms and pungent convictions at times, and also tender drawings cannot be doubted. But whether those chosen in Christ are not, in their natural state, subject to impressions which others never experience, must remain undetermined, since we know so little of the real state of the hearts of most men. But as there is undoubtedly a special providence exercised by Christ over those sheep not yet called into the fold, I cannot but think it probable that they are often influenced by the Holy Spirit in a peculiar manner to guard them against fatal errors and destructive habits and to prepare them by degrees to receive the truth. We know very little, however, of what is passing in the minds of thousands around us. The zealous preacher often concludes and laments that there is no impression on the minds of his hearers. When, if the covering of the human heart could be withdrawn, he would be astonished and confounded at the variety and depths of the feelings experienced. Those impressions which manifest themselves by a flow of tears are not the deepest, but often very superficial, while the most awful distresses of the soul are entirely concealed by a kind of hypocrisy which men early learn to practice to hide their feelings of a religious kind from their fellow creatures. A man may be so much in despair as to be meditating suicide when his nearest friends know nothing of it. 
The attempted immediate effect and the expectation of it is one of the errors of the present times. Indeed, it is the very watchword of a certain party. But let us not be misunderstood. We do not mean to say that all men are not under indispensable obligations immediately to obey all the commands of God. Concerning this, there can be no difference of opinion. But the persons to whom we refer seem to think that nothing is done towards the salvation of men, but at the moment of their conversion, and that every good effect must be at once manifest. Perhaps someone may infer that we believe in a gradual regeneration, and that special grace differs from common only in degree. But such an inference would be utterly false, for there can be no medium between life and death. But we do profess to believe and maintain that there is a gradual preparation by common grace for regeneration, which may be going on from childhood to mature age. And we believe that, as no mortal can tell the precise moment when the soul is vivified, and as the principle of spiritual life in its commencement is often very feeble, so it is an undoubted truth that the development of the new life in the soul may be, and often is, very slow. And not infrequently, that which is called conversion is nothing else but a more sensible and vigorous exercise of a principle which has long existed, just as the seed underground may have life, may be struggling to come forth to open day, but it may meet with various obstructions and unfavorable circumstances which retard its growth. At length, however, it makes its way through the earth, and expands its leaves to the light and air, and begins to drink in from every source that nutriment which it needs. No one supposes, however, that the moment of its appearing above ground is the commencement of its life. But this mistake is often made in the analogous case of the regeneration of the soul. The first clear and lively exercise of faith and repentance was made the date of the origin of spiritual life, whereas it existed in a feeble state, and put forth obscure acts long before. I find, however, that I am anticipating a discussion intended for another part of this work. At present I wish only to remark further that what has been said about early impressions and juvenile exercises of religion is not applicable to all. There are, alas, many who seem to remain unmoved amidst all the light and means by which most are surrounded in this land, and these too are often found in the families of the pious, and do actually pass through more than one revival without partaking of any unusual influence or experiencing any strong religious feeling. Esau had a title to the birthright, and yet he so despised this peculiar blessing that he actually sold it for a mess of pottage. Abraham, too, had his Ishmael, and Jacob a troop of ungodly children. Eli's sons were wicked in the extreme, and Samuel's came not up to what was expected from the children of such a father. Among all David's children we read of none who feared God but Solomon. These, however, who become extremely wicked, have often resisted the strivings of the Spirit, and not infrequently the most impious blasphemers and atheists have once been much under the influence of religious light and feeling. But quenching the Spirit have been given up to believe a lie, 
and to work all uncleanness with greediness. We have said that there are some persons who grow up to manhood without experiencing any new religious impressions except mere momentary thoughts of death and judgment. And these may be persons of a very amiable disposition and moral deportment. And these very qualities may be, in part, the reason of their carelessness. They commit no gross sins, the remembrance of which wounds a conscience. Being of a calm and contented temper, and fond of taking their ease, they shun religious reflection, and turn away their thoughts from the truth when it is presented to them from the pulpit. Some persons of this description have been awakened and converted at a mature age, and have then confessed that they lived as much without God as atheists, and seldom if ever extended their thoughts to futurity. Of course they utterly neglected secret prayer, and lived in the midst of gospel light without being in the least affected by it. There is, moreover, another class who seem never to feel the force of religious truth. They are such as spend their whole waking hours in the giddy whirl of amusement or company, full of health and spirits, and sanguine in their hopes of enjoyment from the world. They put away serious reflection as a very bane of pleasure. The very name of religion is hateful to them. And all they ask of religious people is to let them alone, that they may seize the pleasures of life while within their reach. If we may judge from appearances, this class is very large. We find them in the majority in many places of fashionable resort. The theater, the ballroom, and the very streets are full of such. They flutter gaily along and keep each other in countenance. While they are strangers to all grave reflection, even in regard to the sober concerns of this life. If a pious friend ever gets the opportunity of addressing a word of serious advice to them, their politeness may prevent them from behaving rudely. But no sooner is his back turned than they laugh him to scorn and hate and despise him for his pains. They habituate themselves to think that religion is an awkwardly unseemly thing and wonder how any person of sense can bear to attend to it. Very often this high reverie of pleasure is short. In such a world as this, events are apt to occur which dash the cup of sensual delights while it is at the lips. Death will occasionally intrude even upon this gay circle and put a speedy end to their unreasonable merriment. Oh, how sad is the spectacle! to see one of the votaries of fashion suddenly cut down and carried to the grave. When mortal sickness seizes such persons, they are very apt to be delirious, if not with fever, yet with fright. Their officious but cruel friends make it their chief study to bar out every idea of religion, and to flatter the poor dying creature with the hope of recovery until death has actually seized his prey. Such an event produces a shock in the feelings of survivors of the same class, but such is the buoyancy of their feelings and their forgetfulness of mournful events that they are soon seen dancing along the slippery path with as much insane thoughtlessness as before. Nothing which ever occurs tends so much to disturb the career of this multitude as when one of their number is converted unto God. 
At first they are astounded, and for a moment pause, but they soon learn to ascribe the change to some natural cause, or to some strange capriciousness of temper or disappointment in earthly hopes. Very soon you will see them as much estranged from such an one, although before an intimate friend, as if he had never been of the number of their acquaintances. Often his nearest relatives are ashamed of him, and as much as possible shun his company. How absurd, then, is it for any to pretend that men naturally love God and only need to know His character to revere it. If there be a truth established beyond all reasonable question by uniform experience, it is that lovers of pleasures are the enemies of God. The class of speculating, money-making, business-doing men is probably as numerous and though more sober in their thoughts, yet as far from God, and as destitute of religion as those already described. But as we find these not commonly among the youth, but middle-aged, we shall not attempt to delineate their character or describe their feelings. I must return to the consideration of early religious impressions which do not terminate in a sound conversion to God. Some five and forty years ago, I was frequently in a family where the parents, though respecters of religion, were not professors. They had a sweet, amiable little daughter, eight or ten years of age, who had all the appearances of imminent piety. She loved the Bible, loved preaching and religious people, was uniform and constant in retiring for devotional exercises, and spoke freely when asked of the feelings of her own mind. I think I never had less doubt of anyone's piety than of this little girl's. There was no forwardness, nor pertness, nor any assumption of sanctimonious errors. All was simplicity, modesty, and consistency. She was grave, but not demure, solemn and tender in her feelings without affectation. She applied for admission to the communion, and who dare refuse entrance into the fold to such a dear lamb? Here my personal acquaintance ends. But years afterwards, upon inquiry, I found that when she grew to womanhood, she became gay and careless, and entirely relinquished her religious profession. My Methodist neighbor, I know, if he had the chance to whisper in my ear, would say, I have no difficulty in accounting for this case. She was a child of God, but fell from grace. But I've never been able to adopt this method of explaining such phenomena. There are few truths of which I have a more unwavering conviction than that the sheep of Christ for whom he laid down his life shall never perish. I do believe, however, that grace may for a season sink so low in the heart into which it has entered, and be so overborne and buried up that none but God can perceive its existence. Now that may have been the fact in regard to this dear child, for her later history is unknown to me. She may, for aught I know, be still alive, and be now a living, consistent member of Christ's church, and may possibly peruse these lines, though if she should, she may not recognize her own early features, taken down from memory after the lapse of so many years. But the picture is not of one person only, but of many, differing only in trivial circumstances. I retain a distinct recollection of another case of a still earlier date, and where the history is more complete. 
An obscure youth, the son of religious parents, in a time of awakening, seemed to have his attention drawn to the concerns of his soul, so that he seriously and diligently attended on all religious meetings. He had the appearance of deep humility, and though free to speak when interrogated, was in no respect forward or self-sufficient. Indeed, he was scarcely known or noticed by the religious people who were in the habit of attending prayer meetings. It happened that, on an inclement evening, very few were present, and none of those who were accustomed to take a part in leading the devotional exercises. The person at whose house a meeting was held, not wishing to dismiss the few who were present with a single prayer, asked this youth if he would not attempt to make a prayer. He readily assented, and performed this service with so much fervor, fluency, and propriety of expression that all who heard it were astonished. From this time he was called upon more frequently than any other, and often in the public congregation, for some people preferred his prayers to any sermons, and I must say that I never heard of any one pray who seemed to me to have such a gift of prayer. The most appropriate passages of Scripture seemed to come to him in rapid succession, as if by inspiration. Now the common cry was that he ought to be taken from the trade which he was learning, for he was an apprentice, and be put to study. The thing demanded by so many was not difficult to accomplish. He began a regular course of academical studies, and his progress, though not extraordinary, was respectable. But alas, how weak is man! How deceitful is the heart! This young man soon began to exhibit evidence too plain that conceit and self-confidence were taken root and growing very rapidly. He became impatient of opposition, arrogant towards his superiors, and unwilling to yield to reproof administered in the most paternal spirit. When the time came to enter upon trials for the ministry, the presbytery to which he applied refused to receive him under their care. But this solemn rebuff, instead of humbling him, only provoked his indignation. And as if in despite of them, he turned at once to the study of another profession, in which he might have succeeded had he remained moral and temperate in his habits. But falling into bad company, he became dissipated, and soon came, without any known reformation, to a premature end. Now suppose this man had been permitted to enter the ministry. The probability is that, though his unchristian temper would have done much evil, yet he would have continued in the sacred office to his dying day. Let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. Chapter 2 Piety in Children it is an interesting question whether now there are any persons sanctified from the womb. If the communication of grace ever took place at so early a period of human existence, there is no reason why it should not now sometimes occur. God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed thee in the belly I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb I sanctified thee. And of John the Baptist, Gabriel said to Zacharias his father, And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. The prophet Samuel also seems to have feared the Lord from his earliest childhood. 
In later times, cases have often occurred in which eminently pious persons could not remember the time when they did not love the Savior and experience godly sorrow for their sins. And as we believe that infants may be the subjects of regeneration, they cannot be saved without it. Why may it not be the fact that some who are regenerated live to mature age? I know, indeed, that many conceive that infants are naturally free from moral pollution and, of course, need no regeneration. But this opinion is diametrically opposite to the doctrine of Scripture and inconsistent with the acknowledged fact that, as soon as they are capable of moral action, all do go astray and sin against God. If children were not depraved, they would be naturally inclined to love God and delight in His holy law. But the reverse is true. Perhaps one reason why so few are regenerated at this early age is, lest some should adopt the opinion that grace came by nature, or that man was not corrupt from his birth. Some have opposed the idea that any are sanctified from their birth for fear that mere moralists and those religiously educated should indulge the hope that they were born of God, although they have experienced no particular change in any part of their lives as far back as memory reaches. But allowing that some may improperly make this use of the doctrine, it only proves that a sound doctrine may be abused. All the doctrines of grace have been thus abused, and will be, as long as the heart is deceitful above all things. There is, however, no ground for those who are still impenitent to comfort themselves with the notion that they were regenerated in early infancy, for piety in a child will be as manifest as in an adult. As soon as such a child comes to the exercise of reason, and in some respects more so because there are so few young children who are pious, and because they have more simplicity of character, and are much less liable to play the hypocrite than persons of mature age. Mere decency of external behavior, with a freedom from gross sins, is no evidence of regeneration, for these things may be found in many whose spirit is proud and self-righteous and entirely opposite to the religion of Christ. And we know that outward regularity and sobriety may be produced by the restraints of a religious education and good example, where there are found none of the internal characteristics of genuine piety. Suppose, then, that in a certain case grace has been communicated at so early a period that its first exercises cannot be remembered, what will be the evidences which we should expect to find of its existence? Surely we ought not to look for wisdom, judgment, and the stability of adult years even in a pious child. We should expect, if I may say so, a childish piety, a simple, devout, and tender state of heart. As soon as such a child should obtain the first ideas of God as its creator, preserver, and benefactor, and of Christ as its Savior, who shed his blood and laid down his life for us on the cross, it would be piously affected with these truths, and would give manifest proof that it possessed a susceptibility of emotions and affections of heart corresponding with the conceptions of truth which it was capable of taking in. Such a child would be liable to sin, as all Christians are, but when made sensible of faults it would manifest tenderness of conscience and genuine sorrow, 
and would be fearful of sinning afterwards. When taught that prayer was both a duty and a privilege, it would take pleasure in drawing nigh to God, and would be conscientious in the discharge of secret duties. A truly pious child would be an affectionate and obedient child to its parents and teachers, kind to brothers and sisters, and indeed to all other persons, and would take a lively interest in hearing of the conversion of sinners and the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. We ought not to expect from a regenerated child uniform attention to serious subjects or a freedom from that gaiety and volatility which are characteristic of that tender age, but we should expect to find a natural propensity moderated and a temper softened and seasoned by the commingling of pious thoughts and affections with those which naturally flow from the infant mind. When such children are called in providence to leave the world, then commonly their piety breaks out into a flame, and these young saints under the influence of divine grace are enabled, so to speak, of their love to Christ and confidence in Him, as astonishes while it puts to shame aged Christians. Many examples of this kind we have on record, where the evidence of genuine piety was as strong as it well could be. There is a peculiar sweetness as well as tenderness in these early buddings of grace. In short, the exercises of grace are the same in a child as in an adult, only modified by the peculiarities in the character and knowledge of a child. Indeed, many adults in years who are made the subjects of grace are children in knowledge and understanding, and require the same indulgence in our judgments of them as children in years. To those who cannot fix any commencement of their pious exercises, but who possess every other evidence of a change of heart, I would say, Be not discouraged on this account, but rather be thankful that you have been so early placed under the tender care of the great Shepherd, and have thus been restrained from committing many sins to which your nature, as well as that of others, was inclined. The habitual evidences of piety are the same at whatever period the work commenced. If you possess these, you are safe. An early piety is probably more steady and consistent when matured by age than that of later origin, though the change, of course, cannot be so evident to yourselves or others. If piety may commence at any age, how solicitous should parents be for their children that God would bestow His grace upon them, even before they know their right hand from their left, and when about to dedicate them to God in holy baptism, how earnestly should they pray that they might be baptized with the Holy Ghost, that while their bodies are washed in the emblematical laver of regeneration, their souls may experience the renewing of the Holy Ghost and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. If the sentiments expressed above be correct, then may there be such a thing as baptismal regeneration, not that the mere external application of water can have any effect to purify the soul, nor that internal grace uniformly or generally accompanies this external washing, but that God, who works when and where, by what means he pleases, may regenerate by his Spirit the soul of the infant, while in his sacred name water is applied to the body. 
And what time in infancy is more likely to be the period of spiritual quickening than the moment when that sacred rite is performed which is strikingly emblematical of this change? Whether it be proper to say that baptism may be the means of regeneration depends on the sense in which the word means is used. If in the sense of presenting motive to the rational mind is when the word is read or heard, then it is not a means, for the child has no knowledge of what is done for it. But if by means be understood something which is accompanied by the divine efficiency, changing the moral nature of the infant, then in this sense baptism may be called the means of regeneration when thus accompanied by divine grace. The reason why it is believed that regeneration does not usually accompany baptism is simply because no evidences of spiritual life appear in baptized children more than in those who remain unbaptized. The education of children should proceed on the principles that they are in an unregenerate state until evidences of piety clearly appear, in which case they should be sedulously cherished and nurtured. These are Christ's lambs, little ones who believe in Him, whom none should offend or mislead upon the peril of a terrible punishment. But though the religious education of children should proceed on the ground that they are destitute of grace, it ought ever to be used as a means of grace. Every lesson, therefore, should be accompanied with the lifting up of the heart of the instructor to God for a blessing on the means. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Although the grace of God may be communicated to a human soul at any period of its existence in this world, yet the fact manifestly is that very few are renewed before the exercise of reason commences, not many in early childhood. Most persons with whom we have been acquainted grew up without giving any decisive evidence of a change of heart. Though religiously educated, yet they have evinced a want of love to God and an aversion to spiritual things. Men are very reluctant, it is true, to admit that their hearts are wicked and at enmity with God. They declare that they are conscious of no such feeling but still the evidence of a dislike to the spiritual worship of God they cannot altogether disguise, and this is nothing else but enmity to God. They might easily be convicted of loving the world more than God, the creature more than the Creator, and we know that he who will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Let the most moral and amiable of mankind or in this natural state be asked such questions as these. Do you take real pleasure in perusing the sacred scriptures, especially those parts which are most spiritual? Do you take delight in secret prayer, and find your heart drawn out to God in strong desires? Do you spend much time in contemplating the divine attributes? Are you in the habit of communion with your own hearts, and examining the true temper of your souls? No unregenerate person can truly answer these and such like questions in the affirmative. It is evident, then, that most persons whom we see around us and with whom we daily converse are in the gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity, and continuing in that state where Christ is, they never can come. And yet, alas, they are at ease in Zion, 
seem to have no fear of that wrath which is coming. Their case is not only dangerous, but discouraging. Yet those who are now in a state of grace, yea, those of our race who are now in heaven, were once in the same condition. You, my reader, may now be a member of Christ's body and heir of His glory, but you can easily look back and remember the time when you were as unconcerned about your salvation as any of the gay who are now fluttering around you. The same power which arrested you is able to stop their mad career. Still hope and pray for their conversion. But tell me, how were you brought to turn from your wayward, downward course? This, as it relates to the external means of awakening, would receive a great variety of answers. One would say, Well, here in a particular sermon, I was awakened to see my lost estate, and I never found rest or peace until I was enabled to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another would answer, I was brought to consideration by the Solomon-pointed conversation of a pious friend who sought my salvation. While a third would answer, I was led to serious consideration by having the hand of God laid heavily upon me in some affliction. In regard to many, the answer would be that their minds were gradually led to serious consideration they scarcely know how. Now, in regard to these external means or circumstances, it matters not whether the attention was arrested in the conscience awakened by this or that means, gradually or suddenly. Neither do these things at all assist in determining the nature of the effect produced. All who ever became pious must have begun with serious consideration, whatever means were employed to produce a state of mind. But all who for a season become serious are not certainly converted. There may be solemn impressions and deep awakenings which never terminate in the saving change, but end in some delusion, or the person returns again to his old condition, or rather to one much worse. For it may be laid down as a maxim that religious impressions opposed leave the soul in a more hardened state than before, just as iron heated and then cooled becomes harder. In general, those impressions which come gradually without any unusual means are more permanent than those which are produced by circumstances of a striking and alarming nature. But even here there is no general rule. The nature of the permanent effects is the only sure criterion. By their fruits ye shall know them. That conviction of sin is a necessary part of experimental religion, all will admit. But there is one question respecting this matter, concerning which there may be much doubt, and that is, whether a law work prior to regeneration is necessary, or whether all true and salutary conviction is not the effect of regeneration. I find that a hundred years ago this was a matter in dispute between the two parties into which the Presbyterian Church was divided, called the Old and New Side. The Tenets and Blairs insisted much on the necessity of conviction of sin by the law prior to regeneration, while Thompson and his associates were of opinion that no such work was necessary, nor should be insisted on. As far as I know, the opinion of the necessity of legal conviction has generally prevailed in all our modern revivals, and it is usually taken for granted that the convictions experienced are prior to regeneration.
But it would be very difficult to prove from Scripture or from the nature of the case that such a preparatory work was necessary. Suppose an individual to be in some certain moment regenerated, such a soul would begin to see with new eyes, and his own sins would be among the first things viewed in a new light. He would be convinced not only of the fact that they were transgressions of the law, but he would also see that they were intrinsically evil, and that he deserved the punishment to which they exposed him. It is only such a conviction as this that really prepares a soul to accept of Christ in all his offices, not only as a Savior from wrath, but from sin. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.